his name that we gather today. And it's in his name that we want to see made much of through the preaching of your word today. So Lord, I pray that uh, your name will increase and my name will decrease and that you will open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you'd have us to receive today. May you be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you take your seats, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20, where today we begin a 10-week journey through the, the Ten Commandments. And here's the thing about the Ten Commandments. They are basic enough for a child to understand. And yet they are profound enough for even the most intelligent minds to never fully comprehend that's true of the gospel. It's true of the Bible. Much has been said in comparison to this is often describing the gospel, often describing the Bible as a, as a body of water that a child can wade out in um, and never fully and, and, and understand it. A child can understand the, the, the depths that are, are here. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Basic, childlike faith and childlike truths. Yet the, the gospel, the Bible, what we study here is, is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and, and never exhaust its depth. We, what we find is the more that we, we learn about the God who has made himself known, the, the more that our hearts are, and minds glory in our Redeemer. Do you find that, church? The more you study and learn about this great God and what he's made known to us, about himself, the more we begin to glory in the God, our Redeemer. But the Ten Commandments come with a wide array of thoughts and opinions, don't they? Whether it's in the, the political world or the church world, from Supreme Court debates to Sunday school debates, the Ten Commandments are not immune from controversy and misunderstanding. That's why for us to understand the purpose of the Ten Commandments to us, the purpose of the law to us, we must first understand the, the purpose and plan behind it in its original context. As the Ten Commandments are, are, are the beginning of the Old Covenant, the, the law being given to Israel. God telling his people how he expects them to live. Meaning, these aren't ten ethical suggestions that are coming forth from God. They are commands that are expected to be obeyed. It's why both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we always see verbs like keep and do connected and associated with the law because they're expected to be obeyed. But see, here's the problem. Too many people associate the law with legalism, and we've all heard this. Many of us may have been guilty of saying that the law is just so legalistic, and the reason that we feel that way is because we see words like keep and do, and we hear people say things like, okay, you have to keep this and do this in order to make yourself right with God. We, we see this uh, uh, interpreted wrongly. We see this being used as a means of legalism. We see this being used as a means of moralism. Again, do these things and then you will be right with God. But neither of those things was ever the intention of the law, either then or now. The law was never meant to be a means of legalism or moralism. The law has always been a means of God's grace. Obedience to God never coming from our love for God, but not 
but not coming from our love from God. Our, our obedience to God comes from our love. It's coming from our love for God, not from the standpoint of God loves us because we're obedient. Let's be clear there. I don't want to accidentally say something that is mis misconstrued or heard wrongly. God does not love us because we are obedient. We are obedient because we love God. You can tell how that can be a tongue twister. You can also tell how that can be easily misconstrued in the minds of people all over the world. I Meaning the problem with the law isn't the law. The problem with the law is those who interpret and understand and apply the law wrongly. So hopefully that this series will be a step in the process of correcting some of those wrong interpretations and understandings and, and applications that we're all guilty of holding in one way or another. But to do so, the question that we have to wrestle with and answer as Christians is how does the law apply to us? A people living under the new covenant, a covenant that is established by the blood of Christ. Because when we start thinking about the law, some are going to say, okay, some of it is abolished and some of it still exists. Others are going to say that it all is abolished. It's all been done away with. So some who say that some still exist and some doesn't, they're going to say the moral laws like the do not murder, the do not steal, the honor your father and mother, those still apply. But then the ceremonial laws like the cleansing rituals and the sacrifices and all the, the stuff that's really kind of hard to understand and weird, like in, when we're reading through it, they say, okay, that's all done away with. And then there are others again who will say that all the law has passed away, every bit of it. All, all the moral, all the ceremonial, all the civil law is done, saying that Christians are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. Full transparency here, that's where I stand. That, that's where I stand. I believe that the New Testament scriptures clearly teach that the law, all the law, has passed away. And here's why. Because all of the law has been fulfilled in Christ. Not some of it, not partial. All of the law has been fulfilled in Christ. We're probably going to do a series after Christmas on Galatians to walk through this a little bit further. But in saying that we're not under the law, I also want to be very careful. I've got to be very careful throughout this entire series to make, think, make sure that things are not being misunderstood. Because it does not mean that the old covenant revealed in God's word has somehow stopped being God's word to us. It doesn't mean that at all. Paul is very clear in 2 Timothy that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And when, Tim, when Paul says all Scripture is for these things, he's not just saying, well, part of it. He's saying all of it. All of it, including the law, which means we still have much to learn about God and what it means to follow God from the law. Because the law is a means of revealing the character of God to us. And as image bearers of God, the law serves as a, a biblical instruction of, on how we are to grow in our godliness. And that's what we're going to be looking at and breaking down over the next several weeks. But let's understand the only reason that we are talking about this today is because God has made himself known. It's what we looked at last week in chapter 19. God having descended on Mount, <coughs> excuse me, God having descended on Mount Sinai in smoke 
and in fire. We saw this picture last week. And through the fire, what is he doing? He's speaking to his people, which is where we pick up today in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But before we look at the first commandment, we need to take a closer look at verses 1 and 2. Which verse 1 saying, and God spoke all these words saying. Because what what does that tell us? What is verse 1 telling us? It's telling us that God has spoke. He has spoken. He has made himself known. It's again, it's what we looked at last week in point number one. God is here and he is not silent. God's speaking to his people here at Mount Sinai through the fire. God's speaking through the Old Testament through his prophets. But come to the New Testament and how does God speak to his people? Through his son, through Jesus. And how does Jesus speak to us? How does God speak to us today? Through his word. Through the Bible. The Bible is God's word to us. So when we gather as a church like we are doing today, we're gathering under the authority of God's revealed word. We're here today and only here today because God has spoken. It amazes me that we would want to gather and call ourselves a church for any other reason than the fact that God has spoken. We're not here to to have our emotions tickled or hear fancy stories or funny stories and walk away with a good laugh. We're here to hear from God. And we do that through his word. Meaning the voice coming out of the fire here at Mount Sinai is ultimately pointing us to who, church? To Jesus. The voice coming from the fire is pointing us to Jesus, the word of God in flesh. And in the process telling us God is the merciful and gracious redeemer, which is point number two. God is the merciful and gracious redeemer. Because before he gives the law, what does he do? Verse two, he says, I am the Lord your God. And just pause right there and think about that. Remember when God made himself known to Moses at the burning bush. Moses asked in that moment when he's, when he's going to be told, he's going, you're going to go back to Egypt and this is what you're going to do. Moses is saying, okay, but what am I going to tell the people when they ask me your name? And now why would they even ask him his name? Because they're thinking about all the little G gods that exist in the world. They're thinking about all of the, the idol worship and all the different pagan worship that's out there. They say, okay, now which God are we talking about? And then God's saying, okay, this is what you're going to tell them. You're going to tell them, I am who I am. I am sent me to you. That's a loaded, loaded I am right there. I am the creator of all things. I am the one who spoke all things in existence. I am your redeemer. And what's the Lord doing here in the Ten Commandments? He's once again identifying himself as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I am the great I am. He's reminding them that he is the one who's delivered them. I am the Lord your God. Who? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is saying, I did this. I did all of this. 
Meaning when we read this, it's coming before the law. Meaning before God gives the law, he reminds them of what, church? Their redemption. Even here in the Old Testament, we're seeing that grace comes before law. They did nothing to save themselves. God saves them. God redeems them. And now he's saying, okay, now this is how you shall live. This is why God has made himself known, in order to redeem. And the very fact that God has made himself known is evidence that he is a merciful and gracious and loving God. Why? He didn't have to. He did not have to make himself known. He did not have to create. He's done all these things out of his own love and goodness. And then giving the law, God shows his love and mercy and grace even more. Now, I know that's not something we typically think of when we think of the law, as the law being loving and gracious. It may have been the, the antithesis of the way that you grew up thinking about the law. But what's the alternative to, to having the law? Not having the law, right? Either you have the law or you don't have the law, which if you don't have the law is what? Complete freedom to live however you want to live. Teenagers in the room say, yes, that's what I want. That's what our culture is crying out for, right? In theory, like freedom from the law. We want freedom. It's the whole thought process behind who are you to tell me how to live? Who, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? That's our culture's push for freedom. That's our inner side of us, inside of us saying, I want freedom from somebody telling me what to, to do. That's the, the thought, the thinking that really that if we don't have the law, we don't have rules, then we're going to be free. It's an antinomian culture. Anti meaning against. Pretty simple. Anti against. Nomos law. Anti-law. Antinomian against the law. Again, it's called being a teenager. But I say this is what our culture is pushing for in theory because no one really wants to live in a world without a law. No one. I mean, can you imagine for a moment if we had absolutely no laws to govern us, none whatsoever? It's a horrifying reality. A horrifying thought to have no laws. So, so what does God do? He shows that he is a gracious and merciful and loving God by giving his children the law. He's doing what any loving parent would do. He's laying down the rules. He's laying down the law. And Mount Sinai isn't the first time. Mount Sinai is actually further evidence of God's grace in giving the law. Because where was the law first given, at least orally given? The Garden of Eden. Only one thing Adam and Eve were, were forbidden to do. Everything else is freedom. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which again meant everything else in the garden was fair game. Everything. You talk about freedom. Just don't eat from this one tree and everything else is good to go. But what do they do? They eat from the one tree that they're not supposed to do. And what happens as a result? Exactly what God told them. Because he had told them, if you eat from this tree, you will die. Eat from everything else and live. Be fruitful and multiply. 
what do they do? What happens when they eat of the tree? They, they die, at least spiritually speaking. Death becomes a reality. They, they've broken the law. And in the process, they're removed from the garden and freedom is lost. But it's still not the only way God has given the law. Before Mount Sinai, before even the Garden of Eden, in the process of creating Adam and Eve, consider the law that has been written on each and every one of our hearts as image bearers of God. Do we, do we have to be taught that it's wrong to murder? No. Do we have to be taught that it's wrong to steal? No. Do, do we have to be even taught to worship? No. We are a people by nature who are worshipers. Why? Because we are created in the image of God. We are all worshipers of someone or something, whether we realize it or not. But what's the problem with the law that has been written on our hearts? It is marred by sin. Romans 1 tells us this. We are futile in our thinking. Because our foolish hearts have been darkened to the truth. We're denying the truth. Our sin causes us to, to twist and turn to deny the truth. So just again, imagine a world of sinful, sinful people left to do whatever they wanted to do with no law. Or imagine a world with sinful people like us left to write all of our own laws. Again, go back to our own children. Us when we were children. Can you imagine what life would have been like for you if your parents said, hey, you can write all your own rules? You can write all your own laws? That would have been one of the most unloving things that they could have ever done for you. So what does God do? He shows his grace even more in giving us the law in writing. You see, I'm going to make it clear what, what my law is. It's, it's not going to be marred by sin. I'm going to show you exactly what the law is. Makes it clear, this is how my people are to live. So quickly, three, three purposes of the law. One, the law serves as a mirror. Meaning the law shows us clearly how we've sinned. It's like one of those magnifying makeup mirrors that sometimes ladies will have in their bathrooms, right? Uh, my wife has one in there, not that she needs it at all, uh, but she has one of those magnifying mirrors that you light up and it has a light that comes around and it just makes everything on your face just exposed and bigger, right? I made a mistake of looking in that thing uh, a few weeks back and who would ever want to expose themselves to that and put themselves through that? I just wanted to throw it away. Like, like, I do not need to know those things about myself. Just throw it away. But that's exactly what, that's what the law is intended to do. To make clear where we've sinned. No ambiguity. But no amount of makeup is going to be able to cover up our sin. What the law is doing is saying, okay, you're wondering if you're guilty here? Yep, you're guilty here. Guilty, 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 guilty. We hate hearing that word guilty, but there's no good news if we don't first understand the bad news. We're guilty. And when we're finding out we're guilty, what's the law doing? It's pointing us to our desperate need for a Savior. It's pointing our, us to our need for a Savior. It's showing us how far from godliness we really are. I look in the, you know, I go in the bathroom thinking, man, I, I'm looking pretty good today. I turn on the mirror and I'm like, whoa, everything has been exposed. I don't even want to go out in public, right? 
That's what the law is doing. It shows how desperate we are for the Spirit to bring us life. I cannot do this. I need the Spirit to work within me, which means the law is a means of God's grace. It's continually pointing us to our need for Jesus, over and over and over again pointing us to Jesus. Two, the law serves as a restraint. So all of our civil and political laws, they fall under this purpose. You know, our home laws and all that here as well. They're laws that are meant to keep us from being as bad as we could be. See, the mirror shows us, okay, like you deserve God's wrath. You're guilty. The mirror is making that perfectly clear. But at the same time, none of us are as bad as we could be, are we? I hope not. Like none of us are, are as bad as we could be. We could always be worse. So think of the law as like a speed limit sign. What's a speed limit sign intended to do? Or let me rephrase that. What's a speed limit sign like supposed to do here, right? What's it supposed to do? To restrain us from speeding, right? This is restrain us from speeding. There are times we want to go faster. Now, maybe you're not that person. But a lot of you are those people. Like you want to go faster. You're like sitting there impatiently on nine trying to get over the mountain and thinking like if there was a side way to go faster past people, you would. You're going down the highway and you're like, you're in the left lane. Speed up. Like go. We don't want to go slow. We want to go fast. There are times we want to go faster. But what is the law doing? It's keeping us restrained. Now notice I say it's keeping us restrained. It's not keeping us from speeding, is it? It might in certain situations, but the speed limit says 65. Now, I know we all know that's the law, but a lot of us think of that as a suggestion. Like, yeah, stay around 65 miles an hour. Some of you are like, yeah, like my dad, I'm going to go 60. Drives me crazy. Like, but then others of you, like right on 65, I'm going to tee-toe the line. I'm a legalist. I'm going to be 65 miles an hour. Others of you then are like 70, 75. We have officers in the room, so we will stop there. But what are we not doing? We're not going 100 miles an hour. At least most of us are not, right? Then you're, you're approaching on being as bad as you could be. Why? Because the law restrains us from going 100 miles an hour. But at the same time, it doesn't keep us from breaking the law. Because if we're even going 66 and a 65, what are we doing? We're breaking the law. The law is serving as a mirror. Law is 65. You're going 65 and a half, you've broken the law. You're guilty. But at the same time, it's restraining us from going even faster. But can you imagine if there was no speed limit sign? No speed limits at all? No traffic laws at all? Sounds good for a moment, right? It'd be one giant game of Mario Kart and Demolition Derby is what the world would be. Even when I go overseas and I'm in countries where it looks like they have no traffic laws, there's an unwritten code of how you operate and how you go about the day. I mean, if their horn is broken, you might as well just put it in the shop. But they have the functioning system of how things work. No one wants to live in a world with no law, only in theory. And that's why the law is a demonstration of the grace of God written on the heart of his image bearers. But thirdly, the law serves as a flashlight. Meaning the purpose of the law is, is still to show us how we are to live. So even while we're, we're no longer under the old covenant, 
it still sets forth a pattern of godliness for us to emulate. It's a tool of instruction. And here's why. Because we who are in Christ, we who are recipients of the new covenant, are able to fulfill the law in a way that Israel never could. And it has nothing, nothing to do with our enlightenment or our ability. Nothing. It has everything to do with Jesus. Everything. For it's Jesus who redeemed us from the curse of the law. See, the law given through Moses was good. It was full of grace. But it could not fix our biggest problem. It cannot fix our biggest problem. Our sinful hearts. Our pride and our rebellion are not conquered by the law given to Moses. But as recipients of the new covenant, covenant, we have received what? New hearts. New hearts. The Spirit has given us new life. We are a new creation in Christ. Meaning, when Christ summons us to obey his law of love, he does what? He offers himself to crush the serpent, making himself known in our pride. He offers to crush the serpent, making himself known in our our lust. He changes our hearts. He empowers us by his spirit. Why? So that we can fulfill the law. See, the law points us to Jesus, who is the perfect fulfillment of the law. And it's Jesus who we are to emulate. Not in, in our strength, but through the work of the spirit in our life. But when we don't, and let's be clear, we will sin. Paul is very clear about this. We, anybody who says he has no sin is, is a, a liar. We all will sin. We will sin today. We will sin multiple times today. But when we do, we hear the words of, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 saying, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am... I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, church, Christ never commands us to do anything he wants us to do in our own strength. Which is why every command is a call to faith. Every single command is a call to faith. We must not be seduced by the tempting lure of legalism and moralism. Let us never think for a moment that obedience to the law can save us. It cannot. But at the same time, we must not live as antinomians against the law. So with that, what is the first commandment? Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Which brings us to to point number three, God is a jealous God. And while he is a jealous God, he is also an incredibly gracious God. Just consider the context of the book of Exodus. They've just left a land in Egypt and are about to enter into the promised land of, of Canaan. Both areas filled with people who are extremely confused about who God is and how he demands for his people to live. Confusion abounding all over the place, much like our world today. You say the word God and you get all kinds of answers. One of the most common answers of the day among the Canaanites especially was the the liturgy God of Baal. 
What did Baal demand as an act of worship, among other things? He demanded that his followers would, would cut themselves and slice themselves as blood would drip down into the dirt below them. Another was a female deity named Asherah. And how is she to be worshipped? Through the worship that was laced with sexual perversion. Another little g-god was Molech, a, a god who demanded to be worshipped by, by child and infant sacrifice. In fact, Albert Moeller in his book, Words from the Fire, he tells the account several years back when they were expanding the runway at the Damascus airport. Workers found a, 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 a pit of burned infant bones dating back to the time of the, the Canaanites. These were little skeletons uh, of babies and children, all the way up to maybe age two years of age. These bodies broken and burned in worship to Molech. And church, this is why what Israel received at Sinai was grace. It was grace. Grace from the God who has made himself known. He loved his people enough not to leave them in confusion about who he is or what he expects them to do in order to follow him. He's saying, this is who I am, grace. This is how I expect you to, to worship and to live, grace. Don't slice your bodies. Don't pervert your souls. Don't sacrifice your children. Have no other gods but me. And what does this law do? It brings freedom. It brings freedom to worship the one true God rightly as he desires to be worshiped. Rightly in knowing who he is. So this isn't God saying he's the greatest of all the gods. If you you bring them all together, well, I'm top. No, he's saying I'm it. I am it. This is a statement of exclusivity. See, God's people were constantly being tempted, as we are today, to make their faith both and. Both, a, both and religions have this and this. But what did God demand? He insisted that he be worshipped as an either or. God saying, either you worship me alone or you do not worship me at all. Worship me alone, or you do not worship me at all. See, later on, when people enter the land, they'll have time of covenant renewal in a place called Shechem. This is years down the line. All these, after the 40 years have taken place, they're in the land. Joshua will tell them, put away the, the, the little g-gods of your fathers that they serve beyond the river in an Egypt and serve the Lord at Mount Carmel. Elijah will do much of the same. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. It's either or. Choose this day whom you will serve. Many, many years later, Jesus will say very similar words, more direct words. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. If you follow me or alone or not at all. See, the fault with God's people has always been that little word and. Always. We want the Lord, but we want the Lord and Baal. We want the Lord and Asherah. 
the Lord and money, the Lord and social respectability. We're fine with God being in our life, but only the part that's comfortable. We want to fit him in and love him along with all the many other loves of our life. The problem is God has no interest in being one important person among many one important part of our life among other important parts of our lives. That's why he starts the law with, you shall have no other gods before me. None. Why? Because God can't be worshiped rightly if he is worshiped alongside any other. Our God is a jealous God. And for whatever reason, people have a problem with this. And I tell you the reason, the reason is our sinful hearts. We push back against this in so many ways. We don't think it's right. How can it be exclusive here? But imagine if your spouse came home and said, honey, I love you. I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But I also love this other person as well. And what we're going to start doing is I'm going to spend one week with with her. I'm going to spend another week with you. And we're just going to just share this time together. Ladies, what's your response going to be? Like, keep it clean, right? No, right? There's going to be a lot more that's going to come with that, but it's going to be an either or. It's either me or her. Why? Because exclusivity is is important to a healthy marriage. It's so much more so in in a relationship with God. Either or. It's either we worship God alone or we don't worship him at all. We love God alone, we don't love him at all. And so when we think of this commandment, especially as it pertains to our relationship with Christ, I I like how Kevin DeYoung refers to it as a a tale of two mountains. God coming down on Mount Sinai, right? That's what we have here. And he's saying, worship me alone. But then a thousand years later, he came, came down on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appearing there, right? And God comes down upon this mountain again. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. See, this is what I find amazing about God. The God who said, you shall have no other gods before me. None. The God who expects us to obey him and him alone is now saying, listen to my son. Why? Why? Because if we don't know Jesus, we don't know God. If we don't obey Jesus, we're not obeying God. If we're not worshiping Jesus, we're not worshiping God. If we're not loving Jesus, we are not loving God. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. And no one comes to the Father except through the Son. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among which men might be saved, must be saved, other than, other than the name of Jesus. Church, the gospel is an exclusive gospel, one way of salvation, because God is an exclusive God. See, the next nine commandments all refer to things, things we should and should not do. But this commandment, 
This, this first commandment mandates an exclusive relationship with God, a fully devoted love of God. See, the first commandment is aiming right for our hearts, directly for our hearts. Who and what do we love most? It's why we can't look at the first commandment without thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It's the call right before they're about to go into the promised land. Moses is kind of preaching this series of sermons through Deuteronomy. And he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind all your strength. What he's saying is you should have no other gods of your affection, no other gods that you are to love but me, totally consuming you, heart, soul, and mind. These are the words that I've commanded today that shall be on your heart. The first commandment is completely focused upon our love for God. God above all. And why is this important? Well, remember Jesus when he is being confronted by the, the religious leaders and they're saying, what is the greatest commandment? They're trying to trap him. What is the greatest of all the commandments? And what does Jesus do? He quotes right back to, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, mind, with all your strength. But then he adds something. In that verse 31, he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, the law of Christ being to love God and to love people. It sums up the law. Because what you have in the first four of the Ten Commandments is all about our love for God, our relationship with God. And the next six are all about our relationship to, to one another. They're manifesting God's character in how we live. But we can't love people if we don't love God first. We cannot love people if we don't first love God exclusively. We, we can't keep the other nine commandments if God isn't the one that we love most. If Christ isn't the one that we're resting in, then we're having a problem here. See, the whole part of the first commandment is about who we love. Who is it that we love? Who, who is the idol in our life? Who's the God of our life? It's not just talking about other religions here. We're all prone to worship. Who are we worshiping? So I've got some diagnostic questions that are inspired by Kevin DeYoung's book entitled The Ten Commandments. First one, who receives your highest praise? Really? Who receives your highest praise? Is it your children? Is it your spouse? Your friends? Or Jesus? Who do you trust most? Like, really? Who do you trust most? Yes, God works through doctors and insurance and medicine, but when you're really in need, who are you trusting to meet your needs? Who do you go to for answers? Really? Like, really? Who do you go to for answers? Like those really hard, difficult life questions? Like where, where are you turning for those answers? Culture? Friends? 
family, pop psychology, people who are going to tell you what you want to hear or you you turn into the word of God? Who or, or where do you turn for purpose and joy? Again, really. Do you find your purpose in the God of the universe or, or something or someone else? Maybe it's a job, a title, a sport, or identity of some kind. Where, where do you find your purpose? Where do you find your joy? Is your self-worth being built up by how many likes that you have on Facebook? Who do you thank? When times are good, who do you thank? See, sometimes the times are tough, it presses us in to, to lean on God even more. Times get good, our pride starts coming out and we start to back up. And we start thanking everybody around us when we stop and giving thanks to God. We could ask so many more questions, but my time clock is ticking over there with the children. Questions like this help us to reveal the the real gods in our lives. But church, I'm here to tell you this morning, only in Christ will you find satisfying and saving answers to these questions which is what we remember as we come to the table today. For those of you who are new with us or may not be familiar, we have tables set up in the back with uh, the elements upon them. In just a moment, we'll have you to to get up and and to go back and you can take those elements, the bread and the the juice, stack one on top of another. But before we do, I just want to think about this message just a little bit further in its application in terms of our belief. Because maybe if you're being today, here today, you're being honest, you're saying, I've never believed. And that's the reason that you're not finding satisfying and saving answers to your questions. You aren't right now trusting in Christ as your only hope in life and in death. And if that's you today, then I invite you to believe in Jesus as the one true and only God and receive the eternal life that is offered in him today. And if you believe, I encourage you to, to take the first public step of obedience to Christ and his commands through believer's baptism. Not not as a means of earning your salvation, but believer's baptism being the sign that God has given to identify his people as being a part of the family of God. So if you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, we, we would love to talk with you. We're talking with several people now about baptism that are coming up this month and the coming months and ready to answer any question that you may have. Either way, we'd love to talk with you about why obedience in baptism is such an important part of the Christian life. And even while we believe it, it precedes the, the partaking of the Lord's Supper. As we believe baptism is the one-time oath sign that displays our entry into the family of God. We're identifying ourselves as the church is identifying us as, as a child of God through our repentance and belief and confession of faith. And the Lord's Supper is that continual family meal that reminds us of God's faithful provision in Christ, of what he did in accomplishing and fulfilling the law for us. So today, as we we close and we respond to the preaching of God's word, I, I invite everyone who's been baptized and currently trusting in Jesus Christ as their only hope in life and death to come to the table and to remember the finished work of Christ on the cross. Christ fulfilling the law for us and then dying on the cross to pay our penalty for where we have failed. Three days later, rising from the dead in victory over sin and death. So church, I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, 
You take the time that you need to, to examine your hearts, repent of sin, examine areas where you may not be walking in obedience, but you come to the table not in your worthiness. You come to the table under the worthiness of Christ's righteousness. And you get the elements and we'll come back and we'll take them together as a church family in just a moment. But let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to give us the law. And we thank you that even in our breaking of the law, you love us enough to make forgiveness possible through your son Jesus. You are a good and gracious and loving God. And we pray that our love for you will result in faithful obedience. May we be people who delight in, in your law because it shows us how we're to grow in godliness. It's your word to us. It points us to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
church, as we take of the bread. We do so and we remember the law. We remember Christ as the fulfillment of the law. So we always want to focus quickly to his death. But his death was able to atone for our sin and pay the penalty for our sin because he lived an absolutely perfect life. He lived a life of sinless perfection in obedience to the law. We have not. We thank him for his obedience and the life that he lived. We also thank him for the death that he died, the blood that was shed upon that cross to make redemption possible for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And Lord, in church, we sing to our great God, the Lord of our salvation, because he rose from the dead. So let's stand together now and and worship and respond to the singing together.